everyone. Welcome to the Studio Podcast. First of all, just want to say thanks for listening. We are excited to get this podcast up and running. If you are new to Studio, we are a church in Greenville, South Carolina. Our heart is to create a place where God and people meet so beautiful things can happen and beautiful things are created. Thanks for listening. And with that, let's get right to it. As I look at culture and society and humanity, it's becoming more clear that the soul of humanity is craving for something more. It's, it's, it's becoming even more apparent. It's, it's, you can't not see it. You, as we look around within the church, outside the church, within different, different aspects of society, it's, it's something deep inside of humanity is longing for something more. And COVID and the pandemic and all this peripheral offshoot stuff that took place in the last few years just highlighted something that was always there. It just made it louder. And there was this craving within humanity for something beyond us, beyond what we understand and what we can see. And this is important to take note of because in many ways, it's almost like saying this, how do we be human? How do we actually get along in this life? How do we navigate what's in front of us? I believe the biggest question humanity's been asking from day one is what does it mean to be human? And today I want to talk about this from several different angles, and I did ask you to take notes because you're going to want to take some, because I'm going to get a bit, a bit of information out for you, to you. As we look at the human story, we, we can see that humanity was shaped by human reasoning or was shaped by the reasoning of God or shaped by the reasoning of something mythical. As you look at the human story, there's usually those three areas or three ways that humanity, the soul of humanity, was actually shaped. In Ecclesiastes, which is a very unusual book for a couple reasons, Solomon wrote, primarily wrote three books. King Solomon was considered the wisest man in all of the Bible specifically, many say, in all of history. And Song of Solomon, Solomon wrote in his younger years when he had an incredible passion and fire in his bones. Now, if you read the Song of Solomon, there's a lot of sexual conversation taking place in there because he was a young man that had a lot of passion. And then when you read the book of Proverbs, the other book that he contributed a majority of what's written in those books, what you'll find in there is Solomon probably most likely in his middle ages. He had grown up a little bit. He, he began to understand life. He began to have a lived enough life to get to this point. And so he wrote the book of wisdom. And it's an incredible book. I encourage you to read it a lot, and if not daily. But Ecclesiastes is this little, peculiar, unusual book at the end of this three-book stretch for Solomon. And Ecclesiastes is fascinating to me on so many levels because it's actually a very revealing book on how Solomon perceived and understood the human soul. And he put this verse, his statement in he didn't write verse, he wrote verse 11, but he had no idea it would be verse 11 of chapter 3. Someone else organized it later. But he wrote this saying, God has placed eternity within our hearts, but no one can tell you how God began or ends. It's fascinating because God creates time and space. He creates you and me, and he places something within our soul that we do not have the human possibility, capability to comprehend, and it's eternity. 
So there's this gap, there's this chasm between what we feel and sense and what our brain can actually grasp. It's almost like a little trick God played on humanity. He said, okay, at some point your brain is going to take over and it's going to figure everything out. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to put something deep inside your soul that will long for something beyond what the mind currently grasps and understands. It's a powerful verse. It actually shaped, for me, a gift of definition of the human soul on so many levels. For followers of Jesus, and I recognize in this room, a majority of us have followed Jesus or following Jesus. And some of you are maybe in a space where you've not said yes to him. Or maybe you're not even sure anymore. And all of us are in different spaces. But this is why for followers of Jesus, we continue to draw our attention back to the life of Jesus. When you, when you said yes to him, it wasn't a one moment. It was a continual moment of drawing our attention back to his life. How he lives informs how we live. How he thinks informs how we think. What he did in his life, how he looked to humanity, how he treated humanity, the things he taught, the things that he exemplified, the things that came from his life informs every aspect of what it means to be human. This is why it's important for us to continually refer back to him. I read once between a, a Christian man, a conversation between a Christian man and another man that was from a particular Eastern religion. And the Christian man told this particular man from the Eastern religion this, the difference between our God is my God died for me. Your God wants you to die for him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, a king who dies on the cross must be the king of a rather strange kingdom. Tim Keller described the kingdom of God as an upside down kingdom. It's interesting if you notice the main metaphor of our faith is death. But yet, why do we strive for safety and comfort? You see, in our kingdom, in God's kingdom, life comes after death. It's human nature to try uh, to continue to attempt to flatten a multidimensional God. It's human nature. Um, everyone within us, we all want some level of control. We want to understand something. And so in our attempt to grasp it, we just reduce God down to something we can understand. And I wonder if, if our, our measure of revelation is, is uh, the dangerous theological statement. I wonder if our measure of understanding is based on how much we control or don't control who God is. So the human nature, if we're not careful, the slippery slope of human nature, if it's not affected by something outside of self, the slippery slope is we control, we define, and we bring meaning to everything that we see. We change definitions to match what we feel. Some believe you're fully alive when you're in full control, but rather what our scripture teaches us is we are fully alive when we're fully surrendered. There's a great book, if you haven't read it, it's an old book. It's written by a man named Viktor Frankl. It's a, it's a classic. It's a legend book, legendary book. The name of the book is Man's Search for Meaning. He pointed out in this book that some level of meaning was the only reason why the Jews during the Holocaust didn't commit suicide. 
Okay, they had to find meaning in what they were experiencing. So the human soul longs for meaning. It longs for a purpose. It's innate in us. The human soul longs for meaning and purpose. It is hardwired into us. The human soul left to itself to define itself is the most base form of humanity. Atheism is incredibly uncreative, incredibly unimaginative. It's dull. And yet we live in a day and age that we seem to be content on redefining whatever we want to be redefined. And when I look at the life of Jesus, I see him looking for examples to try to explain, communicate, tell stories of this relationship between God and humanity. We have to understand that when Jesus entered into the human story, when he entered into the narrative that was currently being written, he had to reintroduce concepts and ideas that were existing in the Garden of Eden. But because of sin, the narrative had changed so much. So as Jesus stepped onto earth, I find it incredibly interesting that he chose to step on earth when the Roman Empire was full-fledgingly strong. He, he did not choose an easy time to step into human history. He didn't choose the age of Solomon. That would have been amazing. Peaceful, prosperous, no war. Jesus said, I should show up then, but it wouldn't have been worth it. So he decided to pick a time in the timeline and saying, okay, where is it really hard and complicated? Where is the environment so anti-God? That's the space and time I'm going to enter. So he chose to enter in the human story during the Roman Empire. Which, if you haven't studied the Roman Empire, it puts our culture, made that look like nothing. What they did in those times, is, it's, it's hard to even fathom. And so Jesus entered into the human story. And you can imagine he's, he's looking for ways to explain to people this longing they have deep inside of them. He's trying to explain this God is not someone stuck in the cosmos He's actually trying to close the gap between the human soul and God. So he's looking for examples. And he's a brilliant storyteller. Jesus was phenomenal taking these massive kingdom concepts, and he could use a mustard seed to describe the essence of faith. Something so simple, something that everyone was in touch with. And then he goes on to other examples. He talked about a shepherd and a sheep. He said, okay, I'm a shepherd and you're the sheep. And my sheep know my voice. Then he goes on to another illustration. He says, so now we've got this widow and the lost coin. And he said, a widow lost a coin and she tore her house apart looking for this coin. Jesus was trying to tell humanity, I will tear everything apart to get you. He's looking for these stories. He was a great storyteller. He was able to take these massive concepts. And then he comes to this one example that's particularly one of my favorites. And if you want to turn your Bibles to John chapter 15, we're going to read this together. And in John 15, you've got this story of the vineyard and the vine dresser. In Eric's opinion, I think this is one of the most intimate stories to try to describe the closeness, the intimacy between God and humanity and God and his people. In John chapter 15, let's, we're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 8. We're going to read it in one stretch, and then we're going to go back through it, and I just want to pull out a few more things before we wrap up for the day. 
John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have, which I gave you. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Some of you have been in church for so long. You remember that little song with the little kid in children's church? No one does. Okay, I've been in church that long. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Say that with me, much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out of the branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. Last verse, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Now, just to give a little bit of a couple tips that might be helpful to understand what Jesus is saying, the vine dresser in this story is referring to God. The vine in this story is referring to Jesus, and the branch is you and me. And in this story, it's his disciple. It's the people he's talking to. Now, let's stop for a moment. I actually think in order to understand this passage of Scripture, reading verse 8 has to be read first. So let's read that one more time together, and then we're going to go back through it. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. The entire story is predicated, built on the idea that God wants you to bear much fruit. That's the entire premise of this intimate relationship with him, that you abide in him and he in you, and as a result of that, your life produces beauty. That's the important thing here. And oftentimes, many people focus on verse 8, I'm sorry, verse 6. They get so caught up in verse 6 about being that branch, they get thrown in the fire. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Some of you haven't even noticed verse 8. You've been so stuck on verse 6. You're paranoid, and yet you don't realize the entire reason why God is involved in your life is to see verse 8. Now, we have to set a couple things into context because we're living in 2022. Our definition of community is very different than the definition of community in the time that Jesus spoke it. It wasn't until around the 1500s, the 16th century, that the word community changed definitions. The understanding around the word community pre-16th century was humanity is a seamless fabric of people. Post-16th century, post-Reformation, post-Enlightenment, community turned into we are a collection of individuals. That's very different. The reason why this is very different because this is an incredibly offensive story. So here you have a vineyard. The vine dresser is God. The responsibility of the vine dresser is that the vineyard produces fruit, not a branch produces fruit. That the entire vineyard produces fruit. And in here we read about how the vine dresser will go into the vineyard. You can actually study. It's fascinating. It's a very hard job. You might get the fruits of it, but it's still hard. 
And vine dress will go into the vineyard and they're looking to make sure that all the branches, all the vines are producing fruit. So much so that if a branch is blocking the sun from the other branches, guess what happens? Prunes you. And if your branch is producing so much fruit, it's going to prune you. That does not match the individual idea system that we have bought into. We are so caught up in our own flourishing, in our own advancement, that God is actually talking about the whole community advancing, the entire vineyard advancing. This is incredibly counterculture, incredibly counter to a lot of how we all think because we live in a modern Western context. So in some way, we have to recapture what's taking place here. I don't know why I'm yelling. I'm just excited. So... <laughs> Charles Taylor explained, religion isn't a belief in supernatural entities, but rather emphasizes the transformational perspective is essential to religion. Religion is fundamentally more about a way of life. Taylor proposes in light of a decline of religious participation, he suggests a decline in the transformation perspective. So the question is this, does our religious participation lead us to pursuing a life that values something beyond the flourishing of self? What's the point? The point is this, our relationship with God is not a social club. It's not an app that we open up. It's not when we need something. It is transformative in its entirety. Every aspect about being in relationship with God is meant to transform every fiber and cell of your being. So going to church, being a part of studio home, or whatever you get your religious experience, and I don't mean religious in a negative sense. I'm talking about your faith, however you walk that out. If it's only a social club, if it's only an addition to your life, you've missed the point. We've missed the point. Religion is transformative in nature, and it must stay in that category. Because if not, you go down the slippery slope of human reasoning, and it's all about how you thrive and how you flourish. And what happens is you begin to define reality. The moment you move some, remove something transcendent from your life, you are left to define your own existence and essence. James K. Smith refers to the modern age in this newly fashioned world closed to anything transcendent or divine. We are left alone without meaning. And because our soul needs meaning, it's something we have to make up. I heard it once said that a postmodern world is a kingdom without a king. Humans were not designed to just do life alone, let alone defining reality. So we have to understand that this whole idea of the vineyard, the vine dresser, he's coming along and the diversions that he takes away in verse, I believe it's verse 2 or verse 3. Another way to look at that, he actually lifts up. So a divine dresser goes into the vineyard. Let's say you're a branch and you've got a bit of fruit or maybe you don't have any fruit and you fell off the trellis and now you're on the ground in the dirt, in the mud, in the weed. The responsibility of the vine dresser is to come along and find out are you dead or is there still potential? 
And if you're okay, what they will do, they will get a bucket of water, some water and a rag. They will get you off the ground and clean you off and put you back on the trellis. That's the responsibility of the vine dresser is to make sure you stay up where you belong so you can produce fruit. Now, Jesus begins to empathize. He drives it home and he says, but here's the deal. You have to abide in me and I in you. And without me, you can do nothing. If I can stretch this passage to fit into today's context, it means that you won't find any meaning in life apart from Jesus. It's impossible. Your soul will search for the rest of your life. But until you recognize that I'm talking to a room of people that follow Jesus, but I'm going to be honest with you. We live in a culture right now that is working hard to pull you into, hey, you can figure it out on your own. You don't need all that. You need this. You can do, what, what are you feeling right now? Just do that. And there's voices. It's on the airwaves. It's in the media. And it's in a dimension we cannot see, but we feel. And there is a pressure that is being created in the church and outside the church to define itself. And Jesus is like, hey, guys, you can do nothing without me. And the key is this. You abide in me and I in you. And guess what? You will produce so much fruit, it's embarrassing. Atheism is a fascinating word. Atheism actually wasn't a word that was actually coined until the 16th century. It doesn't mean it wasn't in place in humanity. It doesn't mean that it wasn't happening in culture. It just wasn't a term that the majority of culture accepted or embraced. So atheism is a rather new concept, and it's fascinating. It's only about 500 years old, essentially. And we're only 500 years into what everyone calls the secular age. We find ourselves feeling dissatisfied with determining our own flourishing, our own human flourishing and fate. Now, I'm going to give you a bunch of information right here that is interesting. I think it's helpful. It, you're, what you're probably learning about me, I'm looking for ideas and frameworks to understand the world that we live in so we know how to move forward and get on this life with Jesus. There's a man, his name is Philip Reeve. I want you to write this down. First world, second world, and third world. This is not referencing developing countries or Western countries. It's a completely different framework. It uses the same terminology, but I believe it's helpful. I found it helpful for me, and I think it'll be helpful to you. First world, second world, and third world. Philip Rafe was an American sociologist and a cultural critic. He described these worlds this way. First world is a pagan world. It does not mean they lack a moral code. Their moral code is rooted in something outside of humanity. It's rooted in maybe a myth or an oracle. So any law that existed within a pagan society was from the outside of the people within the society. Maybe it was an oracle that heard from something out in the whatever realm and said, this is the law. So no one questioned the law because something outside of them gave them a moral code. So that's the first world. It's pagan. It's not Christian, but something outside, something transcendent from their perspective determined how to do life. The second world is what we would call the Christian view, the Christian faith. We are shaped by the Bible. We are shaped by the life of Jesus. We are shaped by our faith in Jesus Christ dying on the cross, going to the grave, and resurrecting from the grave. A lot of Western society, the moral code of Western society, actually originated from the scriptures. 
You can look at our modern day justice system. Now you might think we've gotten off track. I would say, yeah, we've gotten off track a bit. But the origination of Western society actually came from biblical principles. This is why when you go to court, you put your hand on the Bible and swear. That, so the second world was shaped by the Christian faith. The third world is defined, it's very different than first and second world. They do not root their culture, their social order, order their moral imperatives in anything sacred at all. Nothing transcendent, nothing divine. Every meaning and definition in society is determined by the human self. So the challenge that we have, we live in a world today where all three worlds are in our face. It's a very different world. And so you can talk to somebody about your view. They're living in a third world reality. They have no context for what you're talking about. When you say you know God, they have no framework for God. They have nothing transcendent in their worldview at all. And you're frustrated because you're preaching God to them, but it makes no sense to them because there's no framework. Now, if you talk to somebody as a Christian, talk to somebody in a first world context, they understand something transcendent, divine is out there, and your, your messaging to them is very different than it is to someone in a third world context. So today's message is about how to be human, but I want to talk about how to reach humanity. Some of us are preaching a message that makes no sense. It makes sense to you. It makes sense to people in this room. It makes sense to anyone that has a Christian frame of reference or reference point. And my challenge to us at studio is this. We're not abandoning that. All we're saying, we have to learn a new language to reach a generation of people that have no context of anything transcendent divine. The reason why I am fighting to have new language and something fresh and new is to reach an entire generation of people that have no framework of a Christian worldview or even a pagan worldview. Two people clap, that's great. I'm gonna wrap it up. I'll have more time in the next service. So Rafe goes on, let me wrap it up here. No culture has ever preserved itself where it is not a registration of anything sacred. That the abandonment of a sacred order leaves cultures without any foundation. And when a culture abandons a sacred order, it is then left to essentially define morality by whatever's current in that day. Some of you are starting to make the connection to the nation that we currently live in. This isn't about politics. This is about a worldview that has drastically changed, and we currently live in a world where first world, second world, third world are in our face all the time. So we have to tell a compelling story. I actually don't believe people reject God because of God. I think they reject the story they've heard about God. So we have to tell a, a compelling story. There has to be another way to tell a story in a very unique way that reaches someone that has no framework. Okay, I'm going to jump to the end. So abiding in him, in him and us, we can do nothing without him. Every existential question, 
everything our soul longs for can only be attained or understood or met when we abide in him. And if there is any day and age where abiding in God, not that it's more important now than it was 20 years ago, but it's crucial. And I want to challenge you as individuals, as family, as moms and dads, as friends, as strangers, as neighbors, that you make sure you're changing your life to abide in him and understand that our relationship with God is meant to transform us. The Holy Spirit gives you gifts, but the Holy Spirit also wants to remodel everything about you. And those two don't always go hand in hand. Some of us think, man, if I got the gift of the Spirit in my life, that must mean I got the stamp of endorsement. It actually does not. God is so eager to reach humanity, he'll use a broken vessel to do it. But it doesn't justify your spirituality. It doesn't justify your relationship with him. So Holy Spirit, I believe, and again, I'm trying to get too theological here because a lot of you have a lot of questions, but I'll just say this for a conversation starter. I believe there are two major functions of the Holy Spirit, to give you power and to remodel your life. When you allow the Holy Spirit inside your life and you fully surrender, if you want to be fully alive, it means being fully surrendered. It does not mean being in fully control, in full control. And when you allow the Holy Spirit in your life, he begins to knock down walls. He begins to bust an open closet saying, hey, what have you been hiding in there? Why? Because he wants to see you bear fruit and to find out what it means to be fully alive. It's not verse 6. It's verse 8. Why don't you stand? Thanks for listening to today's talk. If you're interested in learning more about Studio here in Greenville, you can check out our website, studiogreenville.com. And you can give us a follow on Instagram. Our handle is studio.greenville. Have a great week.